Titus chapter 2, 11 to 15. Paul's letter to his disciple Titus, who he left in Crete to establish churches and leadership in those churches on the Isle of Crete. It is the next to last letter that the apostle would write. It was a letter written from prison in Rome, an imprisonment from which he would not be released except to be martyred and to go into glory. And these are his words to his disciple Titus. Titus chapter 2, I start in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Would you bow with me? Our hearts are full of gratitude this morning, our Father, for the provision of the Savior. Not for the provision of a Savior. Not for the provision of a teacher, a guide, a director, a friend. But the one who is the consummate of all of these. The Savior. The guide, the provision, the friend. He is all of those things and more par excellence. There is no one, no one who supersedes him. And we thank you that he has appeared. And that he, having now ascended to your right hand, where he along with you rules and reigns over all things will one day appear again for our final redemption. And while we wait, might we find hope, strength, encouragement to persist in these days. Would you guide us this morning as we think about the two appearances of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. It is the season for waiting. Oh man, I had this all timed. There we go. It is the season for waiting. And you're waiting for me to get the clicker used right, right? Uh, it's the season for waiting and waiting and waiting. Maxine Bland can empathize. A couple decades ago, she showed up to work and found a letter there waiting for her that had been postmarked 14 years earlier. It had the correct postage for the time in which it had been sent 14 years earlier. It had the correct address. It had the correct zip code. It had just been sitting somewhere waiting to be delivered for 14 years. It was a letter from her sister. And it contained a check for $150. For 14 years, she'd been waiting for that check. 
She had been waiting so long for that check. In fact, both she and her sister forgot the reason that the check was sent to begin with. And on she waited. Christmas, in a far more biblical sense, is also a time of waiting. Think about the prophets. The prophets were waiting for the Messiah. First Peter tells us in chapter 1, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The prophets waited. The angels waited. In that same passage, It tells us that the angels waited for the Messiah. It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. The angels were wondering, when will the Christ be sent? Simeon had labored long in the temple while he waited and waited long enough that it seems, as we read Luke chapter 2, that he anticipated that he might die before he would ever see the fulfillment of his prayer. There was a man in Jerusalem, his name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking, looking for the consolation of Israel. He's looking for the Messiah. He's waiting. Similarly, Anna served in the temple and she waited for the Messiah. We just read that. And it wasn't just Anna who was waiting and anticipating, did you capture the last part of that? That she became, began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of Him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Israel. So she's looking and a host of others in the temple along with her. In fact, the history of the Old Testament is a history of faithful people who waited for the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, which could only be fulfilled in the Messiah. They're looking and they're waiting. When will the Messiah come? That's Hebrews chapter 11, recounting the history of the Old Testament. Joseph of Arimathea, who provided the tomb for our Savior to be buried in, it tells us in Mark chapter 15 that he was waiting for the coming of the kingdom. He's looking The disciples were waiting for Christ to ascend to his throne. And so in Acts chapter 1, even as Christ is about to head into glory and resume his place at the right hand of the Father, the disciples said, Now is now the time that you're going to establish your kingdom? Romans chapter 8 tells us that even creation is waiting for the consummation of God's plan. Waiting and waiting And waiting and still waiting. And then Christ came. A child is born and God appears to the world. While numerous New Testament writers speak about the appearance of God in the arrival of the God-man Jesus Christ... This morning, I want to draw your attention to a little-known Christmas text, Titus chapter 2, where Titus will be taught by his mentor, Paul, and we will be taught along with Titus that the two appearances of Christ serve as a motive for our service of Christ. 
We've been thinking over the last few weeks about our theme for the year, equipping the saints and the work and the ministry that we do. And this text provides us with a motive for doing what we do in caring for one another and discipling and equipping and training one another within the context of the body. And it all centers around the person of Jesus Christ and particularly his advent. We serve him because he has come. And we serve Him because He will come again. Let us think about those two Advents this morning. First of all, in His first appearance. What it is? What is it that Christ brought in His first appearance? Notice the text. The Apostle tells us in verse 11 of Titus chapter 2, The grace of God has appeared. Now, as you think about the grace of God, you can... You can think about all kinds of different places where God's grace, His unmerited favor, is manifested to you, is revealed to you. And and, and you think about it in all kinds of daily circumstances, don't you? You think about God's provision for you in a job. You think about God's provision for you in the ability to, to pay a bill or to pay all of your bills. You think about God's provision for you in a spouse and children and and even even something as simple as a parking spot that enables you to make an appointment on time. You thank him for the grace of a kind word that is spoken to you or for grace to speak a kind word to someone else from you or endurance for a task. We we are inundated with manifestations of God's grace every day. But God's grace has been manifested, revealed in a very particular way in the appearance of Christ. Now, the apostle doesn't overtly say that Christ is the one who has appeared in the form of grace, but it is clear that that is exactly what he's talking about when he says the grace of God has appeared. That word appeared is an interesting word. It's a word from which we get our word epiphany. It is not just an appearance, not just a showing up. It is a revelation. The grace of God has been revealed, has been manifested, has been put on display, has been shown. The grace of God has been particularly manifested in the appearance and the advent of Christ. We see that even in chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared... The kindness of God manifested itself, just suddenly showed up on the scene scene in the appearance, in the the manifestation of salvation. Verse 5, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit. We, We see God's grace exhibited through the gift of salvation, which came through Christ only. What is particularly important about this word appearance is that it infers that Christ showed up in a particularly unique way. Christ wasn't made the way you and I have been made. Yes, he was born and yes, he was birthed, but that birth came with a singular uniqueness. And that's redundant, but it makes the point. There is nothing else akin to Christ's birth. He wasn't created. He wasn't made. 
He merely showed up, appeared, boom, at the appropriate instant as the uncreated one. And that, that verb appeared emphasizes the fact that he is not created, but at the right time, he showed up and was revealed. Jesus was not a man who was created, but he is the eternal God who came revealing himself and the nature of the Father. What's interesting is not just that Christ's first appearance is talked about in ways that say he showed up as the uncreated one. John particularly uses that term over and over. I think he uses that term or a similar one about a half dozen times in his first epistle to emphasize the fact that he is the unique God-man. But it's not just the first advent that focuses on that, but even the second advent also focuses on the fact that one day he will just, boom, appear and be there. And we see that just, you can turn back one page, maybe two pages in your Bible, Second Timothy chapter 4, I solemnly charge you, verse 1, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing, boom, there He is, and His kingdom, verse 8, same chapter, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved His appearing. There He is. And the, the writers... We take that as a given, right? So Jesus is just going to show up. No one knows when. No one knows the day. No one knows the time. Even Jesus said, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, in His humanity, even He didn't know the hour in which He would return to set up His kingdom. So no one knows when He will come back. Just one day, there He is. And the writers speak in the very same way about His first advent. There He is. It points to His uniqueness. And the arrival of Christ is the reason that we serve Him. Notice the text, verse 11, Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared. That word for is providing a reason. A reason for what? What's He providing a reason for? What's the, what's the appearance of God's grace in the person of Jesus Christ providing a reason to? Well, if you... Flip back up to the beginning of that chapter, verse 1. As for you, Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And then he gives instruction for Titus to teach older, women, older men, older women, younger women, younger men, slaves, to teach them all these things, verse 11, for, because the grace of God has appeared. You speak these things. You speak doctrinal truth. You root yourselves in the scriptures as you minister and serve and build the churches on the Isle of Crete because the grace of God has appeared. What else are you going to give them? It's only the grace of God that is adequate and only the grace of God that is sufficient. The grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ is the only adequate message to build the church of Christ. And you're going to teach something else? No, you will teach the grace of Christ. Anything else is folly. And Paul will note three particular aspects to this grace 
that Titus and we are to give attention to. First of all, in his first appearance, we teach God's grace and the appearance of God's grace because Christ brought grace. Christ brought grace. It is notable, and we've already drawn attention to this briefly, that Paul doesn't say Christ appeared. He certainly could have. But he says the grace of God has appeared. What Paul means by that is that when Christ appeared, grace appeared. Grace looks like Christ. You want to see grace? Look to Jesus Christ. You want an image of grace? Look to Jesus Christ. And we look, we think about all kinds of things that are gracious. Well, that was a gracious word. That was a gracious gift. That was a gracious act. And those things are true. But the epitome of all grace is Jesus Christ. There is no grace greater than Jesus Christ. He is the source of grace because he is by nature grace. Grace is not something that is added to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is grace. He is the epitome of all grace, possesses all grace, and is himself grace. This is, um, this is an astounding gift that Christ would appear in such a way, bringing the manifestation of grace to the people. Paul is not saying when he says this, that the grace of Christ has appeared, that the grace of, the grace of God was invented. He doesn't say the grace of God begins with the advent of Jesus Christ. Grace has always existed. Grace has always been a part of the nature and the character of God. We know that grace is not just a New Testament idea. It's a Bible idea. It, it permeates almost from page one of the book until the very end. Let me give you just two examples from the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 6, very early on in the history of the world. The Lord looks at the sin that's on the earth. It says in verse 6 of, of Genesis chapter 6, The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. He was grieved in his heart. He said, I will blot, on, blot out man who I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky. I am sorry that I have made them. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found, that word favor is the Old Testament word grace. He found grace in the eyes of God. From almost the first page of the Old Testament to almost the last page of the Old Testament, we have this picture of grace. Zechariah chapter 12, we saw this a few weeks ago. I will pour out. On the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And that is anticipating the end of the age when God will redeem his people Israel and he will redeem them out of grace. So from the first page of the Old Testament to the last page of the Old Testament and on into the New Testament, what we have is grace. And grace is particularly epitomized in the advent of Jesus Christ. This verse 
Titus chapter 2 verse 11 does not mean that God's grace has changed. But it does mean that the manifestation of grace has been changed. In that, now we see grace in a whole new way. It's not just a baby that's arrived. It's grace that has arrived. When we saw Christ, we saw grace. Grace was revealed. There was nothing greater that God could do to manifest His grace than to send Christ. And there is no grace greater than Christ. One missionary wrote a couple generations ago, the early Christians did not say, stay, say in dismay, look what the world has come to. But in delight, look what has come to the world. They saw not merely the ruin, but the resource for the reconstruction of that ruin. They saw not merely that sin did abound, but the grace did much more abound. And on that assurance, the pivot of history swung from blank despair, loss of moral nerve and fatalism, to faith and confidence that at last sin had met its match. That's the appearance of grace. That has come in Christ. Christ not only brought grace. But notice also in verse 11. That Christ has brought salvation. Christ has brought salvation. The grace of God has appeared. And with it bringing salvation to all men. The grace that has been revealed particularly. Is Christ's salvation. What Christ did to save sinful mankind. And when you read that little phrase, bringing salvation to all men, don't read it as bringing salvation to all men so that all men will be saved. That's universalism. That's not what the apostle is teaching. He means by this that the only means of salvation is through God and Christ. And all that we need in order to be saved is found in Christ and in Christ alone. And that Christ is fully adequate in his death on the cross to pay for all of the sins of all men who would ever believe in him, even if it was all the people of the earth. There is none that could escape and say your blood isn't enough. He brought salvation to all men. The, the offer is made to all men and the blood is adequate for all men. It is sufficient. He brought it to all men. The offer is made to all men. The opportunity to be saved is given to all men. So Paul would write in his first letter to Timothy chapter 2, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. This is the heart of God that yearns for, longs for the salvation of all men. And Christ is adequate for all men. God is the Savior of all men and that He makes the, sa the offer of salvation to all and He graciously and patiently withholds the immediate judgment of sinners to give them opportunity to repent and to come to faith and to trust Him. And aren't you glad that He was patient and the first time He didn't, the first time that you sinned, He didn't say, that's it, you're out of here. Into judgment you go. No. He was gracious. And patient and waited for you to repent and come to your senses 
and come to the Christ. And the meaning of this statement is that salvation has come to earth. And that no language group, no class of people, no group of people is excluded from that offer of salvation. And just think about the context in which he says that, right? He's talked to older men. He's talked to older women. He's talked to younger women. He's talked to younger men. He's talked to slaves. No matter what the gender, no matter what the class, no matter what the position of a person, salvation has come in the person of Jesus Christ. The reason that Paul takes the time to explain this is because that's the foundation of Titus's teaching. Titus can only teach people to live in the way they should because of the grace of God that has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ and the salvation that he brings. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing more gracious in our lives than the appearance of Christ. And the provision of salvation. It is. Everything. It is. It is nothing else. That will be our joy. Our satisfaction. Three minutes before the service started this morning. I was sitting in my chair. Preparing my heart. For our worship service. And somebody walked by. And says my name is. And I love Jesus. That's right. We love Jesus because there is nothing else. There is no salvation in anything else. There is nothing else you can do to be saved because, just skip down like four verses, five verses, chapter 3, verse 3. We also were once foolish ourselves. We were disobedient, deceived. Enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our lives in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, whoops, there's that word again. Wonder who he's talking about? Jesus. When He appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, because we could not, verse 3, we could not do anything righteous. But according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, giving us new life and renewing by the Holy Spirit, a transformed life whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Christianity addresses Jesus Christ, addresses our greatest problem by accomplishing the one thing we cannot do, and that is save ourselves. And he shows up. And he brings with him salvation that will save us. If you are this morning with us and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, you are not a Christian. You may come to church on a regular basis. You may come to this church on a regular basis. You may open your Bible. You may have conversations. You may teach. You may be engaged in various kinds of ministry. But Jesus Christ doesn't captivate you and you don't have his, he doesn't have your heart. And you really haven't been transformed by him. You haven't been changed by him. Oh, friend, there's only one thing you need. And the one thing you need has come in the person of Jesus Christ. You trust him. 
And by that I simply mean you acknowledge that you have sinned and that you are a sinner and you deserve His wrath only and that you are believing Him only to save you from that wrath and to give you something to live for, which is Him, and to delight in Him and to enjoy His fellowship. And oh friend, if you repent of your sin and you turn to Him in faith and you long for Him, He will save you. That's what He does. Because He came for that purpose. In that first appearance, he brought grace. He brought salvation. He also brought sanctification. Notice verse 12. The grace of God not only provides salvation to all men, but it also provides, verse 12, instruction. We receive instruction through Jesus Christ. Christ is not only grace personified, but He is also our teacher, our guide, and our source for living out the salvation that He gives to us by grace. So, having received this gift of salvation, now what do I do? Well, He instructs us. He tells us what to do. And just to make an obvious point stated, we need instruction Because, how do I say this tactfully? We're ignorant. We don't know. We're foolish. We're like small children. Two and three and four years old who don't understand how the world operates and don't know how to live in this world. And we need to be told everything. And that, my friend, is exactly what Christ That's done. He's told us everything we need in order to live. Notice the text. He instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly. He tells us, said most simply, he tells us what not to do and what to do. He tells us what sin to put off and what righteous things to put on. That covers everything, brothers. Everything we need to know, we are given to Given in Christ Jesus. Christ's grace in sanctification instructs us, notice what he says, to deny ungodliness. To deny ungodliness doesn't just mean we avoid ungodliness, it means we renounce it. It means that we have a murderous hatred for sin. So John Owen said, be killing sin before it be killing you. We kill it. We hate it. We despise it. And there is a, there is a place thus for hatred and despising, right? It's for those things that will annihilate us and harm us. We hate those things. We deny it. We renounce it. And having renounced it, we live soberly and righteously. What are the things particularly that he draws our attention to to renounce? He says we are to deny ungodliness. This is the activity of sin. This is is the stuff we do that is sinful. Ungodliness is anything that is impious. Anything that is sacrilegious. Sacrilegious words. Sacrilegious activities. Sacrilegious deeds. Sacrilegious places. Anything that we might engage in that says, not God. 
that's ungodliness. It's anything that is done by the person who has no place for God. Think Romans chapter 1, and everything that's in that text is in this list. And we don't just put off deeds of ungodliness, though. Notice what else he says, instructing us to deny, to renounce ungodly actions and worldly desires. We don't just put off the deeds of unrighteousness. We put off the desires of unrighteousness. It's not enough to say, I didn't do it. It is only enough to say, I don't want to do it. By which we know, not only from this text, but from multiple other texts as well, that a sinful desire is also sin. So if I desire to do something sinful, that's sin. Now, how do I know that's true? Well, Jesus said it. If I, if I don't murder someone, is that enough? I mean, I've, I've used this illustration before, but imagine you get a new neighbor and the new neighbor comes and introduces himself and, and you say, well, what do you do? Well, I don't kill anybody and I don't commit adultery. Oh, that's a great commendation. Just what is it that you do? You're starting to get a little nervous, right? I would be. No, Jesus says, it's not enough to say, I haven't murdered anybody. It's only, the issue of anger is only dealt with if you're not angry in your heart. And if you're angry in your heart, it's as if you've already killed somebody. And so it's not just, it's not just put off the activity is put off the desire. You put off the desire because everything that you do comes out of the inside, right? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so Paul is saying that Christ has come, and this is the good news for us. Christ has come instructing us for how we can not only stop doing what we don't want to do, but stop thinking and desiring the things that we don't want to think and the things that we don't want to desire. He's adequate for that. He's sufficient for that. He equips us to say no. Before salvation, we could not stop indulging the flesh. We were only selfish and only self-indulgent. And now we can say, not only will I stop doing X, but I will stop desiring X. And in place of that, he also instructs us how to live sensibly, righteously, and godly. He instructs us how to live. This is, this is the antidote to the things that we are to be denying and putting off and rebuking. And this is, this is the putting on in opposition to the putting off. And what are the things that we are to put on that he equips us to do? Sensible living. This is a word that we've seen repeatedly both in Titus and in Second and First Timothy. It, it's that it's that word soberness. The person is is serious minded. He's of sound mind. He is thinking clearly and discreetly. He is resolute. He can't be moved away from his godly actions. He's made a course and he will follow through on that. And not only is he living sensibly, but he is living righteously. He's just and fair in his dealings with others. He's not afraid to do the right thing, even if it's costly. And he's godly. 
And this is the opposite of the word ungodliness. This matches the putting on of the putting off of ungodliness. The ungodly person has no place for God anywhere in his life, but the godly man is reconciled to God, loves God, and lives for God in everything he does. He's God-saturated. And combined, these words refer to his duties to himself, his mind, and to others, and to God. He's to live with a self-controlled mind, live rightly and justly with others, and in genuine piety and godliness with the world, with, excuse me, with the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but the world I live in is a tough place to live. And we live in a perverse world, don't we? This is a place where I could give like three hours of examples of perversity. I don't need to do that. You know that. We're faced with it every single day. We're surrounded by corruption and deceit and sin and rebellion and anger and hatred and dishonesty and perversity of all kinds. But notice this. The grace of God that sanctifies us, enables us to live in just such a world. Notice what Paul says. Instructing us to deny ungodliness, to live sensibly. Notice the last part of verse 12. In the present age. Literally, he says, in the now age, now, in this time, in this place, in this world, not just in the next one, but now God's grace is adequate to enable us to live in godly ways. We don't have to wring the hands in despair and say, oh, what will I do? No. Christ's appearance said, here's the provision so that you can live now in this world. So one commentator says, right here, right now, God's grace operates to make us the kind of people who live the kind of lives that honor God and benefit others and ourselves. The grace of God extends the power not just to rescue us from an evil world, but to transform us in the midst of it. In the now age. And just to remember the context in which Paul's writing, Paul's writing this to the churches in Crete. Well, what was Crete like? Well, just... Glance up to the top of the page of the previous page. Chapter chapter 1, verse 12. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. In other words, Paul says, and he ain't lying. You don't want to live in that kind of world. But you do. And it gets even worse. Some had followed the teaching of the Cretans. And verse 16 of chapter 1, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. And those people had infiltrated the church. So it wasn't just out there, it was in here. And it's in that context that Paul says the appearance of Christ gives a grace that is sufficient for now, for this problem, for this time. 
We cannot throw up our hands and say, it's impossible. Who can do this? Doesn't God know how intense the pressure is in this world? Yes, he does. That's why in the fullness of time, he sent the embodiment of grace in the person of Christ so that you can live now in this world in a way that honors Christ. It is possible to live godly and to deny ungodliness because of the appearance of grace. Christ didn't just come once though. He's also coming a second time, isn't he? And that is what the apostle draws our attention to next in verses 13 and 14. In his first appearance, he brought various manifestations of grace. In his second appearance, he will bring glory. Because Christ has come once and promised to come again, notice what Paul says in verse 13, that part of the putting on of the grace that has been granted to us, verse 13, we are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're looking. We're looking. That word looking is more than just looking for the Amazon package that's showing up this afternoon and making sure to grab it before your kids grab it and rip it open and see what the present is. It's not a looking that means I'm going to go digging through mom and dad's closet to find the gifts that haven't been wrapped yet. Kids don't ever do that. That's a bad deal. I've got a story, but I don't have time for it today. But it involved spankings, so don't do that. No, that's not the kind of looking. It's, it's eager anticipation. It's longing. It's yearning. I might say even, it's, 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 it's this almost broken hearted when... It's the idea of the prophets in the Old Testament. How long, O oh Lord? And they're looking and they're waiting and they're watching. And notice that it's a present tense looking right now. And the idea is they're always looking, unrelentingly looking, always watching, always anticipating, always longing. And that word looking, notice, also is connected to the main verb in verse 12. How we are to live. How do you live in this present world? You live looking. Sometimes we fail in this world because we're looking at the wrong stuff. And we're looking down when we should be looking up. We should be looking beyond the fray and beyond the difficulty and look at, at what is to come for us and who is to come for us. Always looking, always longing. We might say it this way, that heavenly heavenly mindedness is part of sanctified living. Notice as well, that he doesn't just say looking in general, but he says looking for the blessed hope and for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. We're looking for something particular. 
we're looking for the blessed hope. The blessed hope is not just, well, I sure hope I get fill in the blank on Sunday, on Christmas morning. No, no, no. That's a wish. That may be a desire. That's not what he's talking about. The hope is something in which we have confidence. It's a genuine reality that exists and we know it's coming. We just haven't gotten it yet. And notice that he says about this hope that it is a blessed hope. That is, it's a blissful hope. It's a delightful hope. It's a glorious hope. It's a, it's a happy hope. How is the return of Christ happy news for us? Oh, let me give you a couple ideas. It is happy for us because Christ's kingdom and authority is established over all people everywhere for all of eternity. Sin is removed. Death is abolished. The imperishable is put on. We receive our new home in heaven. We receive the reward of the crown of righteousness. And preeminently we get to see God. And we don't die when we see God. We get everything. And we are, in the words that Paul writes to the Thessalonians, always with the Lord. Unrelentingly, unchangingly, permanently. Paul further identifies this blessed hope by calling it the appearing of glory. Notice what he says. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. He doesn't mean by that that's two separate things. That word and can mean that it's connecting a whole series of things in sequence. This is one thing, two things, three things, four things. Um, yesterday for lunch... I had chicken fajita and beef fajita and homemade tortillas and, 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 and I was really full at the end. That's a sequence of things. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, looking for the blessed hope, even the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. In other words, he's defining what the blessed hope is. It is the appearance of the glory of Christ. We see his magnificence. We see the outshining of his radiance in all of his fullness. And we are transformed into his likeness. Randy Alcorn writes this. C.S. Lewis paints a beautiful picture of heaven in his final book of the Narnia series, The Last Battle. The book begins with a near collision of a railroad train where the children are thrust into Narnia. But when their adventure is over, the children are afraid that they will be sent back to earth again. Having experienced the joys and wonders of Narnia and the presence of Aslan, the lion who is in fact Christ, the thought of returning to earth was unbearable. And then in the final section called Farewell to the Shadowlands, Aslan, the great lion, gives the children some wonderful news. There was a real railway accident, says Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it, in the shadowlands. Dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream has ended. This is the morning. 
And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia have only been the cover and the title page. And now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and in which every chapter is better than the one before. That is the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Did you notice how Paul has identified Jesus in these verses? He is our great God. He's not just God. He's ours. He belongs to us and we belong to him. He is also a great God. That is, there is no one who stands alongside of him. There is no one who supersedes him. He is the greatest of all beings. There is no one like him. Because he is God. He is deity. He alone is deity. He is Savior. He is the one who saves and redeems us from sin. There is no hope for salvation in anyone else since he alone satisfies God's wrath against sin. And he is Christ Jesus. He is the Messiah, the appointed one. And he is Jesus, the God-man. He is the eternal God-man who will receive all the worship of men for all of eternity. This is the one who has come to us. This is the one who has appeared. At the beginning of this message, we noted how so many people were anticipating in the time of Christ's advent, the appearance of the Christ, the Messiah. They're waiting. But as they were waiting, we do well to remember that there were multiple appearances of God in the Old Testament. God appeared at creation. God appeared in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. He appeared and spoke to Abraham. Abraham. He was the pillar of fire and the cloud in the wilderness for the nation of Israel. He was the cloud and thunder at Mount Sinai. He was the warrior at Joshua 5. He was in the Holy of Holies in the temple. And he was the voice behind every word of the prophets. Theologians call these appearances of God theophanies. Theo, Theos, Epiphanies, God appearances, literally. And all of the Theophanies of God, which were a great many, and of those great many appearances, the greatest was the appearance of Jesus Christ in the Incarnation. The appearance of Jesus Christ at Christmas and the Incarnation answers the great questions about God. What is God like? And what will my life be like if I could be with him? One theologian writing about God's theophanies said, Meeting God turns out to be an earth-shaking experience that will change you forever. Theophany, appearance of God, reminds us concerning the God-centered character of the Bible and the Christian faith. 
We should seek communion with God, not just enjoy his benefits or focus on ourselves as beneficiaries of this salvation. When Jesus Christ came in his first theophany, it turned the world upside down. And it will be even more dramatic at his second appearance. We rightly look back to Christ's first appearance. But remembering his first coming should stimulate our desire for his second coming. And empower all of our activity for him as we wait for that second coming. Father, thank you for the appearance of Christ. Thank you that he showed up. Thank you that he showed up and was everything that we needed. He was grace embodied. He was not just grace in general, but he was a particular grace that provided salvation and sanctification for those of us who believe in him. Thank you that there is no one else like him. And that being unique, he has revealed himself to us in the incarnation. And with all the things that are pulling at us this week, the regular pressures of life and the pressures that are particular to this season, might you keep us from being undistracted and might our attention Our joy, our delight be on the appearance of Christ who will one day soon appear again. In his name we pray. Amen.